Well, as Nikki said a moment ago, we are so glad uh, that you're here with us and spending part of your weekend with us as a church. And uh, here at Crossroads, if you've been with us any extended period of time, you know that we value and hold high marriage. And uh, we, we don't want to just teach about it. We don't want to just model it as a church. But we want to come alongside you and provide some tools and resources to help foster and cultivate uh, a really good relationship between you and your spouse. And, and so all this comes down to me just encouraging you, all right, to take advantage of our save the date uh, free childcare. I mean, what better deal than that, all right, for, for all you uh, young parents out there, we'll watch your kids for free and uh, eliminate that excuse, guys, that you can't find the babysitter on Valentine's Day. And so please take advantage of it uh, because we know that uh, continuing to date your spouse long after the wedding day is really important uh, to keep and maintain a a healthy uh, marriage and, and relationship. I got to tell you, uh, the other night I walked into our kitchen and our three-year-old daughter, Vera, was sitting on the other side of the counter on top of a bar stool, having her bedtime snack. And, and I couldn't really see what she was doing because she was bent over. I just saw the arch on her back and every few seconds she just was giggling to herself. And so she didn't see me walk into the room, but I wondered what she was doing. And so I then walked around the counter, and there before me, she had this large tub of yogurt sitting right in her lap, and she was generously sharing her bedtime snack with our dog, Valley. She was taking her spoon, she was digging out a big clump of yogurt. She would then let Valley have a few licks of it, and then she'd just finish it off herself, and... I mean, talk about gross. Apparently, she had been doing this for a few minutes. And so I tried to explain to her, you know, you can't really do that. That's really gross and disgusting. But what I didn't tell her was that about an hour before I looked out our back window and out in our yard valley, that very same dog was licking herself. Yeah, thank God for vaccinations, right? <laughs> Now, we laugh at that because, hey, she's a three-year-old. She's naive, she's innocent, and she didn't really know any better. And you kind of expect kids to act like kids every now and then like that, right? But I want you to imagine that you were to come over to my house, and as you walked into our kitchen, I was sitting on that very same bar stool, and I was doing the same thing. How would you react if you saw me doing that? That'd be a little gross, Right? I mean, you might laugh at first, but maybe deep down, that only would confirm every suspicion that you've had about me so far, all right? I mean, chances are you would walk away surprised, but also thinking to yourself, that's pretty immature. I mean, that is really gross. I mean, it's one thing for kids to act like kids, but there's kind of this unseen pressure and expectation that with your behavior, it kind of parallels with your age, right? I mean, if somebody's a certain age, there is a certain way to behave or a certain way to act. And, and that natural process in life is, is called maturity. And it's really obvious to us when someone isn't there and they maybe lack that maturity. For the past uh, month or so here at Crossroads, we've been in this series where we've been walking through a book in Scripture called 1 Corinthians. And, and more than just being a book, this really was a letter written to a church in the first century, written by a guy named Paul who actually started this church. All right, Now the reason why he started this church and, and wrote this letter about 18 months after beginning it is because this church was a bunch of adults that were just acting like babies. I mean, they... 
kind of started out well with this whole following Jesus thing, but eventually over time they just lost steam and they ended up fizzling out and and they just lacked natural growth that comes when you begin a relationship with Jesus. And and so the text that we're going to look at today in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we are going to see Paul call out this lack of growth and maturity in their life and and really challenge them and and press into it, all right? And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app, uh, I want you to go ahead and turn to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, There should be a Bible right in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. If you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, uh, it's right on that table as you walked in uh, a little bit ago. And uh, like I said, again, we're going to be in chapter 3. First Corinthians, just so you know, is in the back, towards the back of your Bibles, right in between the New Testament books of Romans and 2 Corinthians, all right? Now, as you're uh, getting there, I just want to clarify a couple things up front here because when we talk about growth in the church and, and maturity, it easily can drift into the waters of legalism, all right? Or what else can happen is that it becomes this measuring rod in which it gives us the right to maybe look down on others who aren't as mature as we are, who haven't been growing, who hasn't been growing maybe at the rate that we have been. And so I just want to clarify a couple things up front as we talk about this today, all right? First thing goes like this, that God does not obsess over a future version of us that we often fail to become. I mean, let that sink in for just a minute. God does not have this better picture of who you are becoming, and that's the version that he is hanging on to in your life, and and maybe that's why he's hanging on to you. No, he does not obsess over a future version of us that, let's be honest, we fail to become. Why? Because we're sinners. We're broken. We, We mess things up. A lot of us, we walk in here and we associate Jesus or the church with this certain weight or pressure to act a certain way. And and maybe for a long time, you've heard that God loves you. And that's something that your parents tried to instill in you at a very young age. and, And you maybe know it in your mind. But you think that God's love for you is more maybe out of obligation, right? Now, let me just be honest with you for a minute and uh, uh, tell you that, that as a parent, I never leave work early in the evenings just so I can get home and change my son's diapers, right? I mean, anybody in here, you just can't wait to leave work. And, well, some of your jobs, might uh, changing a diaper might be better, all right? <laughs> but how many of you just look forward to cleaning up a blowout? Anybody? <laughs> and nobody, right? Now, as parents... Uh, of our 10-month-old Bauer, we love him, and so we are changing his diaper several times a day, right? And the reason why we do that is because we love him, but also we know, and sometimes this is the only thing that can keep us hanging on, is that a day is quickly approaching when he is going to outgrow his need for diapers, and he will be potty trained, right? And so again, you, you know God loves you. you. You've been told that. It's in your mind. But you think that God loves you maybe just because you feel like he, he has to. You know what your past looks like, right? I mean, no matter how hard you try, no matter how pure or good your intentions may be to not do that, to not look on that website or to not go there, you fail and you keep doing the same things over and over again. And and it's because of your messy life and the shame that you carry. You think that God just kind of is putting up with you like you're just in a season of, of living in diapers right now, right? God doesn't want to exchange you. God doesn't want to give you up. He doesn't have this better version of you in mind, and that's the reason why he's hanging with you. No, when Jesus came to this earth, he didn't say, okay, here's the deal. 
I will go to the cross, but here's what you have to do for me first. You've got to clean up your life. I mean, you've got to improve some things. You've got to live a more moral lifestyle. But, and then maybe once you get there, I, I'll go to the cross and I'll give you really what you need most. No, that's not at all what happened, right? Well, the Bible tells us that while we were still God's enemies, while we were still in hostility with the God of all creation, that's precisely when Jesus died for us. Here's the second thing I want us to hold on to. The maturity is the process of growing into our identity that we don't deserve. It's the process of growing into our identity that we don't deserve. Now, this is going to sound a little bit cheesy and like a bumper sticker you might find at a Christian bookstore or something, all right? But maturity is a journey. It's not a destination, okay? None of us ever really arrive there. The Bible tells us that whenever we begin a relationship with Jesus by believing in him and trusting that what he did on the cross was for us and that we can find freedom, that in that moment, an exchange happens. God takes all of the guilt and all of our baggage from the past and and he gives us in turn a new name. We have a fresh start, a brand new identity. And in that moment, God tells us that we are then adopted into his family. And so that adoption that we've received, we don't deserve it, but it's every single day learning how to live that out. And so maturity is about learning to live out every single day who God says that we are with our everyday choices and decisions and how we treat one another and how we think, right? Now, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that, you know, you're never going to struggle again, doesn't mean that your anxiety or depression is just going to go away in an instant. And just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean that you're not going to be tempted to cuss somebody out before you leave the parking lot here in about 45 minutes, all right? No, Jesus doesn't guarantee you that you're not going to struggle and you're not going to fight at different times, right? But you see, maturity is learning to live out who God says that we are and learning to live out this better life that he provides. And honestly, just speaking from experience, it can be a really frustrating process at times. Well, let's look at what Paul says here. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to pick up in verse 1. Words will be up here on the screen. Paul says this, brothers and sisters... I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. You're still in diapers, mere infants in Christ, Paul says. Now, notice how before these Christians are called out for their immaturity, Paul reminds them of their identity yet again. He did it in chapter 1. He does it here in chapter 3, all right? By addressing them as brothers and sisters, he's inadvertently telling them, remember that, that you've been adopted into God's family, that you are one, that Jesus has brought you in in spite of what you don't deserve. Now, if they were children of God, the Corinthian believers were children of God, but evidently, they were living like slaves, In other words, you couldn't tell it by the way that they were choosing to to live. And you see, this process, again, it it doesn't happen overnight for us. Now, when my wife Savannah and I choose to get invested into a show, rarely do we watch a show on TV when it's being aired in in real time. We we usually wait until it's uh, uploaded to Netflix. Why is that? Well, because when you're watching it on cable, you have to wait a whole nother week until that next episode comes on. You know what I'm talking about? Whereas Netflix, you don't even have to press a button and that next episode just pops right up. You know what I'm saying? And so by show of hands, how many of you want to join our Netflix binge support group? All right. (laughs) 
That kind of describes our culture a little bit. We want things instantly. We don't like to wait, and, and we become very impatient. And in this process of growing and maturing into our identity, it's, it takes a while, and it can be frustrating. And here's the other thing. All of us, we, we grow at our own rate. We, we grow at maybe a different rate than the person beside you, in front of you, or behind you. Our oldest, uh, John Ryman, he's now five years old, but uh, he first started walking when he was nine months old. Now, our youngest, Bauer, again, who's uh, 10 months, he, he, he's 10 months and he hasn't started walking yet. And so let me ask you this. Just because Bauer is maybe a little bit slower to develop and progress, does that mean that we love him as his parents any less? Does that mean that Bauer's any less a part of our family because he hasn't grown as quickly as his older brother? No. I mean, that's crazy. And so understand that God does not love you anymore because of your maybe development and maturity in life. And, and he doesn't love you any less when you take a few steps backwards. Look at how uh, Paul reminded the Corinthians uh, that he had met them right where they were at when he lived in Corinth. He said this, look, I gave you milk, not, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still in diapers. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Paul says. Now, evidently, this church had just lost their focus. And a loss of focus always leads to a lack of growth for us. We get stuck whenever someone or something takes priority over Jesus. And so Paul continued this analogy, all right, by saying that they were still living off a bottle of milk when, when they should have progressed onward toward more solid teaching. You see, they should have known. Here's the thing. They should have known that, that dividing the church over stupid, petty things wasn't honoring to Christ. I mean, the Corinthians should have known that God's design for sex did not involve one-night stands with prostitutes. I mean, they should have known that, but, but evidently they didn't. And, and so how did they end up in this place? Let's look back in chapter 2, what Paul says. He talks about when he was with them and starting this church. I, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except, he says, Jesus Christ and, and him crucified. What's he talking about here? Well, Paul said that when he started this church, his message, what he talked about, it was very simple and basic. There wasn't anything flashy about it. Evidently, he walked into town and told people about this Jesus guy who possessed the authority to forgive sin, give grace, and, and offer eternity in paradise. Now, only Jesus, Paul said, can, can deal with all of our shame, guilt, fear, and insecurities. And Paul said that, look, the proof of Jesus' authority to be able to provide this is the fact that he walked out of the grave three days after the Roman soldiers put him to death. Now, I don't know about you, but anybody who shows up alive to his visitation, I'm with that guy. And so that's what Paul's saying here. The cross of Jesus is where we find forgiveness and freedom. But the cross is also central when it comes to our, our growth. Author Tim Keller uh, recently tweeted this. He said, the cross says that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than, than you ever dared hope. And some of us, we need to be reminded of that. You see, the cross is our ongoing promise that we are righteous and holy in spite of how we live. 
You see, it calls for us to think differently about everything in our life. The cross tells us that that all people matter. If the sovereign God of all creation put aside his rights, privileges, preferences, and benefits and willingly endured the cross like the Bible tells us, then what makes us think that we're entitled to certain benefits, rewards, and blessings? Now, what I want to do for the remainder of our time today is... um, is walk through different stages that kind of describe uh, how we typically progress in our faith. Now, again, I don't want you to use this as a weapon, okay? Don't nudge the person sitting beside you like, that's where you are, and too bad you aren't even there yet, all right? That's not the purpose of this. I also want you to know that the wording of these points has been inspired by a book that I recently read. Yes, I know, I'm smart, I actually read a book, all right? God does miracles, all right? <laughs> First, amen, yes, thank you for that. I don't know why you're surprised. First stage of growth goes like this, all right? We're going to call it life above God, all right? Life above God. And you might want to write this down. This is where the Corinthians were. There was no distinction between their life with Jesus and what their life looked like before they bumped into him. Now, how they were living in the moment, again, it was no different than their prior lifestyle. And so Paul told the Corinthians that they were infants, they still needed milk. And and so for this stage of growth, all right, I've got a a baby bottle up here to kind of represent what life above God uh, is really all about. Now, uh, there's an author, F. Scott Peck, who says that every human being is born a narcissist and much of maturity in life is about unlearning our tendency towards narcissism, and that includes babies, right? Now, you might sit there and think, well, you know, babies are so cute. They, they aren't prideful. They aren't narcissistic. How can that be? They're, they're just so cute, right? Now, ladies, imagine when you go home later today, your husband sits at the table, and he pounds the table, and he screams and yells and cries, and he starts throwing things at you until you feed him. What would that tell you? Well, that really may be no different than how he normally acts, all right? Uh, <laughs> Now, our kids, they've never woken up in the middle of the night and thought, you know what, I'm hungry right now, but mom and dad are still asleep. I, I think I'll, ju- I'll just suck it up. No, they've never said that. When they're hungry, they're letting you know it, and you better feed them quickly. You better tend to their every need. From the beginning, as babies, we think we're the center of the universe, right? The only people around us, the only reason why people around us exist is for our every need and, and to meet some want that we have, Right? <laughs> And so for those of us that maybe find ourselves in this stage of growth, what does life above God really look like? Well, maybe you walk around always expecting people to compliment you and encourage you. Maybe you find yourself doing things you normally wouldn't do, but you know it's going to earn you acceptance because you need to to have the approval of people around you. Or or maybe you you lack forgiveness towards somebody. You you feel like they still owe you something, so you're withholding that from them. You're holding it above them, right? Or or maybe you you never take responsibility. You're always pointing blame. You're always pointing the finger. And it's not my fault. You always expect other people to, to be gracious and forgiving to you. But when it comes to you actually doing that for others, no way. And so if life above God kind of represents a a, a baby bottle here, uh, the next phase we're going to call life from God. All right, here's the second phase, life from God. And we're going to use an iPad to uh, describe what what this phase looks like for us. And let me explain this. On Wednesday of this past week, uh, I was sick, so I 
came home from work a little bit early, and as I walked through our front door, our kids were so excited to see me, and they screamed, and they ran up to me. Well, our five-year-old, our oldest, John Ryman, was especially excited to see me, even though they all knew that I was sick and that I was going right to bed. And so when John Ryman came right before me, he looked up at me with his big eyes, and I said, hey, buddy, how you doing? He didn't even say hi, didn't even say, glad you're home, hope you're feeling better. He said, Daddy, did you bring home your iPad so I can play a game on it? I know, you know, I mean, he didn't care that I was really there. He, he wasn't excited for me to be, the only reason why he got excited for me to be home is because of what I could provide him, right? Didn't ask me how I was feeling. And you see, some of us, we have connected our life with God for the sole reason of what God can provide us, of what he can give us. We, we follow Jesus not, not so much because of who he is, but because of, of what he can give us. Christian Smith is a, a sociologist from the University of North Carolina, and in one of his books, he states that after all these years of research, he's concluded that after analyzing different Christians who are a part of the church and, and how they relate to God on a daily basis, that most, he said, see the Lord as a combination between a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. I mean, if God can't make us happy or doesn't solve our problems, then, then what's the point in having him in our life? And you see, for far too long, there's some of us who have been stuck in this phase because the way we interact with the creator God, honestly, is probably no different than the way we treat our internet provider. I mean, everything is great as long as the contract's being fulfilled, but, but expectations are only valid if they're mutually agreed upon. And you know what Jesus said? He said, life in this world is going to stink. Clean that one up. It stinks. John chapter 16, he said, in this world, you are going to have trouble. He never promised us an easy life, right? And so many of us find ourselves in this place today. Your expectation of God is that, that he will always make you happy. He'll give you what you want. But this is a really dangerous place, honestly, for us to be. Because like the Corinthians, it's us. We, we make ourselves the focus in our walk with Jesus. And a lot of us have some issues with God because we feel like that he's failed to deliver on some promises. Now, I'll be honest, I hate this question that I'm about to ask. But what if the circumstances that we tend to avoid the most are the things that God uses to grow us? What if the circumstances that we tend to avoid the most are the very things that God chooses to grow us? The season of my life that I felt like God failed me the most was when I was diagnosed with cancer just out of the blue. And I'd been married about seven months. I was 20 years old. And about a year before being diagnosed, I had made this deal with God that went like this. Okay, God, I'll be a pastor. I really don't want to do this because a lot of pastors are just weird and they don't know how to have fun in life. But if this is what you're asking me to do, then, then I'll do it. And, and so you can imagine why being diagnosed with cancer a year later was a little bit of a curveball for me. And I was angry. I was frustrated. I had a lot of fear about what the future would hold. Would I even live long enough to celebrate my one-year anniversary? And I was insecure about what the chemotherapy and the radiation was doing to my body. Now, you see, what the, the way that I found out I had cancer is kind of a parallel with what Jesus really taught me during that time of my life. One Friday morning, I woke up. I had this back pain, didn't know what to 
it just been there for a long time. And so finally, I went into an urgent care center, got it checked out. A doctor said, hey, you've got an abnormal mass. Don't know what's going on here, but you need to have a biopsy done. And a couple days later, that, that's when I was officially diagnosed with a rare form of, of lymphoma. Now, here's the thing that I later learned. That pain I had in my back had nothing to do with my cancer. But had I ignored the pain, I never would have found healing. I maybe wouldn't even be alive today. None of us walk in here looking forward to suffering. None of us want to feel what it's like to, to be betrayed by God, right? And yet, is it possible? Is it possible that those are the moments in which we tend to grow the most? That God sometimes allows us to go through things so that we can see he can be trusted even when life doesn't make sense. See, what God taught me in that chapter of my life is that I'm not as invincible as I thought I was. And, and Jesus really can be trusted even, even when our world comes crashing down. His grace really is sufficient. And so one question I have for you is, is if you couldn't ask God for anything in this next week, what, what would your prayer life look like? I mean, can you honestly say that, yeah, God, your grace is sufficient? Or is it Jesus plus something else? The next stage of growth is uh, what we're going to call life for God, all right? This is when we appear to be growing in our relationship with Christ, but, but deep down our motivation is for, you know, to make God indebted to us. We obey because we want God to owe us something. Now, this can be really deceptive for us because we can do all the right things on the surface. We have a lot of knowledge, and even when people ask us advice or they want wisdom from us, we, we say the right thing. We know, we know what to say. And yet this is when we constantly feel this pressure that we have to do more in order to make God happy with us, to make him proud. And, and yet maybe some of us, there's that little whisper in the back of your head that says you don't measure up. And, and so that's why you feel like you've always got to do more. The object that uh, we're going to use to describe this phase is my wallet. Didn't want to leave it up here on the table. All right. Now, a wallet is... Not necessarily special unless there is something significant inside it, right? And, and money is something that can motivate people in our life to do things that maybe we don't normally want to do. Does anybody just love moving? No, we hate it, right? And it's amazing how many excuses I can give when a friend says, hey, can you help me move? Well, you got to go home and watch paint dry or something, you know what I mean? But if money is offered, it's amazing how I can just kind of clear my schedule in, in order to make that happen, right? One time Jesus told this story about a really wealthy father who had two sons. The younger son went to his dad one day and said, Jesus, or, uh, Dad, I, I, I want my inheritance. I want, I want all my money now so that I can go and live this life that I've been dreaming about and fantasizing about for a long time. And, and so in grace, the father gives him the money, and the younger son, he goes and he lives the way that he wants for a period of time. Well, the older brother, the, the older son, he, he remained by his father's side. And, and Jesus was very careful to tell us that, that he did exactly what the father asked him to do. He was faithful. He always attended church. He was right there. I mean, he, he obeyed. He, on the surface, he had it all together. And yet the story goes that the younger brother eventually just came to the end of himself. And he ended up coming back home, hoping that his father would just accept him to be a servant on his estate. And, and so the father, Jesus says, was looking off into the distance one day, saw the younger son approaching. He ran towards him, put a coat around him, and told one of his servants, hey, kill the fattened calf. We're going to throw a huge party because 
My son who was lost, he's, he's now found. He, he's come back home. I'm, I'm so excited. And so later that day, the older brother, who again was faithful, working out in the fields, at the end of the work day, approached the house, heard the loud music, the dancing, and saw that a big party was being thrown. And so he turned to his servant, what's going on here? What, why is my dad throwing a big party? And the servant said, well, your younger brother who, who ran away and, and lived off in the far distant country, he, he's come back home. And so your dad's really excited. How did, how did the older brother respond then? And Jesus is really careful to tell us. Luke chapter 15, he says this, the older brother became angry and he refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, look all these years I, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed any of your orders. You see all that I've done? Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Now the point of Jesus' story was to tell the religious leaders that were listening in on this, hey, look, you know what? You are no better than the sinner, the tax collector, and the prostitute that you're sitting beside right now as I tell this story. The only difference between the brothers is how they decided to rebel. You see, the younger brother rebelled by running away from his father and rejecting all of his rules, while the older brother, he rebelled by obeying his father and keeping all the rules in order to manipulate his father to get really what he wanted. And so the moment the older brother realized that his obedience didn't earn him more points with his dad in comparison to his younger brother, he got angry. <laughs> he didn't want to celebrate. And you see, living life as an older brother, it can be really dangerous. Because it's possible to do just enough right that we really are numb to our brokenness and our sin. My experience has been that this is the phase in which a lot of us grow kind of tired and, and weary and bored with God. We kind of go through the motions. I mean, for example, for those of you that have been coming to Crossroads for a while, when you walk into the worship center of the chapel here and, and you go to find your seat and you see that somebody else is sitting there, what do you think to yourself? Now, if you're like me, I see someone sitting in my seat. I say, who does he think he is? Well, that's not what I say. Hey, man, so glad you're here. God bless you. We go through the motions. It's kind of robotic. We, we know what to say. We know what to do. And, and it's easy to become really calloused in this stage. And this is usually when we grow bitter towards people in our life. Or, or again, we withhold forgiveness because we believe somebody owes us something. But in reality, life for God isn't much different than karma. You've trained yourself to believe that the things in your life will go well for you if, and only if, you do more for God. But if maturity is about us living more fully in our identity, then that brings us to our last phase in which we're going to simply call life with God. Life with God. This is the place that God designed for us to live. It's how he intended for us to live from the beginning. And, and the reason why he created us as humanity is for his glory and, and for his fulfillment and joy. The book of Genesis tells us that our very first parents, Adam and Eve, were with God and, and walked with him in the Garden of Eden. They had peace with him and they lived in harmony with him. But then one day, the Bible tells us that this serpent, which resembles and represents Satan, approached Eve and told her to eat from the one tree that, that God said to abstain from. Now, the thing that sealed the deal was when she was promised by the serpent that, you know what, if you eat that piece of fruit, you will be like God. Now, that piece of fruit promised her something that she had been missing. It promised her acceptance. It told her that, that she would finally feel pretty enough, finally feel beautiful enough, and it said that she would finally be free. But then once she ate it, she immediately realized how she had been betrayed by her choice. 
Doesn't that sound pretty familiar to a lot of us? And that a lot of our stories? And so while God in that moment had to be separated from his creation, his plan the entire time was for Jesus to come back, rescue us, reclaim what we lost and restore what had been broken. And again, that's precisely what the cross of Jesus did. Through the cross, we can find peace with God again. Later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul gives Jesus a rather interesting title. It seems a little bit weird at first. He says that Jesus is the last Adam. What in the world is that all about? Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, our first dad, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, a life-giving spirit. Now, basically, Paul says that, that we can have life today because Jesus died for us. Now, the first Adam, he rebelled, but, but the last Adam, Jesus, through him, we can find reconciliation. Now, the first Adam, he had a bunch of shame and guilt and insecurities in his life, yet it was the last Adam, Jesus, who absorbed all our guilt, shame, and insecurities and fears for us. The first Adam, our dad, he, first dad, he exchanged himself for God. He substituted himself for God, and yet it was the last Adam, Jesus, who was God, yet he substituted himself for, for us. And this is why Paul would go on to write about 216 times in all his letters in Scripture that if you have made the decision to trust Jesus and you believed in him, then we are in Christ. In other words, all the holiness, righteousness, and redemption that we need is ours. And this isn't because of how great we are or how clean we live our lives, but it's all because of what Jesus has done. Author uh, Peter Cesaro says that one of our biggest needs as followers of Jesus is to have what he calls a Copernican revolution. Now, you may recall in history class that Copernicus discovered that when we learned that the earth wasn't the center of the universe, that shockwaves went out all throughout the globe because we thought the entire time the earth was the center of it all, but only to find out that it was really, it was really the sun. And you see, some of us, we can walk out of here today realizing that freedom happens when we realize that it's not about us. It's not about me. And so what if true maturity is about us walking in humility because the closer we get to Jesus, the more we're aware of our brokenness and what we really don't deserve. And so here's the thing. You will never be who God wants you to be unless you learn to make it less about you. You The freedom, the purpose, and the better life that Jesus promises, it won't just cost you something. Now Jesus says it's going to cost you everything. And while it's totally impossible for us to earn our identity, learning to live it out requires work. And and so what's the takeaway today? Well, the last prop up here is just a little water bowl and and a towel inside here. What's that all about? Well, if we're gonna live life with God, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so the best question we can ask ourselves is what defined Jesus' life? What what does it look like to live life with God here and now? Well, the thing that defined Jesus' life is when he said, look, I came to not be served by you, but to serve all of you. Just moments before he was arrested to be crucified and betrayed. And Jesus had one last meal with his closest friends, and, and as they walked into the room that evening, something really surprising happened. It totally caught them off guard because as they entered through that door, it was Jesus, their rabbi, their teacher, their leader, who bent down and he began washing all their feet with a basin and a towel. I understand that during the first century, this was not even a task that would be reserved for a slave. I mean, this was embarrassment. This was shame to do this. Nobody did it. 
And yet that's exactly what the God of all creation did. Why? To not just, I guess, model for us what following him really looks like, but in a way to illustrate what he was about to do for us on the cross, that that freedom happens when we put aside our preferences and our ego and we follow after the one who said, I I didn't come to to be served, I, I came to serve. So what's the takeaway today? Uh, if you're a part of a volunteer team here at Crossroads, we want you to know how glad we are that you're on board and, and we appreciate what you do. You give of your time and, and of your gifts to build up the body of Jesus here at Crossroads. And, and we just want you to know we, we love that and, and we really appreciate what you are doing. Maybe a takeaway for you goes like this, and it's just a question I want to throw out there. What would it look like for you to serve one person this week in a way that tells them that they are better than you? Who is that person for you? Is it maybe a coworker, family member, maybe a neighbor? I don't know who it is, but chances are that their face is in your mind right now as I'm talking. What would it look like for you to care for them and go out of your way to show them love in such a way that they would walk away saying, man, I, I feel like I'm a better person because I had that interaction with him or her. Now, if you're not a part of a volunteer team here at Crossroads and and you want a practical next step, let me just tell you about some opportunities that we have that we're really excited about. You know, we have two volunteer teams here at Crossroads that are so incredibly important and are making such a significant uh, difference every single week. Uh, The first volunteer teams are hospitality team. Now, these are our volunteers that help you park your car, even when you've maybe cussed them out, out in the parking lot, all right? greeters out on the sidewalk to if you feel welcome when you walk in our building to maybe our volunteers back at the welcome center to section host these are the individuals that are a part of our church that are literally modeling for you what Jesus has done for us because we are welcoming you into our church regardless of what your past looks like and and so that's why we take really seriously how we treat people here we want you to know that you are loved and accepted and and that's why how you are treated our hospitality teams are more important than anything I'll say up here because it's the illustration of what Jesus has done for us And so maybe this is going to be a great next step for you to become a part of our hospitality teams. Now, I will say that if you want to be a part of this team, it'd be a a pretty good idea that you don't hate people, all right? (laughs) If you like people and uh, you think, yeah, I I get a lot of energy being around others, then this may be a really great step for you. The other volunteer team I want to tell you about, our children's ministry team, all right? Now, for us parents in here, These are the volunteers that are caring for your children the hour or so while you're in here. And and understand that these are more than just selfless individuals who are just babysitting your kids. That's not at all what's happening. No, these are men and women who have given up their time to help shape and mold the next generation. These are selfless individuals who, who are literally taking your children and they are praying this very moment, whether you knew that or not, they are praying over your child that he or she would grow up to know and love and serve Jesus. And so if you want to be a part of shaping the next generation of kids and you want to make a significant impact in the kingdom of God, then I want to encourage you to be a part of our children's ministry teams. Again, if you hate kids, probably not for you, all right? But... Uh, Practical next step for you is this, that to take out your phone right now and to text SERVE to 25827. We'll send you a text message back and, and from there we'll connect with you, we'll follow up with you this week and we'll provide training and, and everything necessary in order to serve on these volunteer teams adequately. Again, text SERVE to 25827 and uh, we'll connect with you in that way. All right?
Well, I'm done. And uh, I hope you'll come back next week. Uh, We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and uh, continue this journey through uh, this letter. All right? Let me pray for us, and then uh, we're, we're almost done here. Let's pray. God, I know for a lot of us, when we talk about you not being in love with a better version of us, that you accept us in spite of what we bring to the table, that it, it, sounds, it sounds great, and we maybe expect to hear that at church, and it looks good on paper, and we, we've maybe been told that for a long time, but I know a lot of us right now, me included, we struggle to sometimes believe that. God, there are moments where our shame and our past, it, it, it speaks a much louder, it speaks at a much louder volume than the truth of your word and who you say that we are. And so God, would you just remind us every moment of every day because we're really forgetful that you've come to not be served, but to serve. And, and our, our job, once we've joined our life with, with yours is to reflect that and to show others that because of you, Jesus, we can empty ourselves out and we're free to elevate others in our life ahead of our own. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray and gather, amen.